0: good morning and welcome my name is drew and uh, i'm a member of this church and it's a real privilege to be up here today and uh, you know to be afforded this opportunity to speak um, and this particular piece of scripture is really it's powerful really interesting the title of the message today is the incarnation of christ it will explore some aspects of jesus becoming a man and the purpose he came to serve what i'll attempt to do this morning is go through each scripture and assess them separately as best i can because the book of hebrews is such a loaded one with multiple layers and references that go through back to the old testament and i wouldn't do it justice if i didn't go through it with a fine tooth comb if you do have a bible on hand it's going to help if you follow along with the scriptures Um, There is a lot to share here, so as much as I would like to give context from the surrounding scriptures, for the sake of time, I'm going to try and stay on the relevant topic as best I can. Um, Please do read through Hebrews when you're at home, because it is absolutely (coughs) packed with spiritual nutrients. I'd like to set the scene with a short prequel to this talk. The Christian faith is unique in many other aspects um, to other worldviews, and as much as anyone would make that statement about what they believe in order to affirm it, this rings most true with us. I listened to an old lecture by a theology professor about this topic a couple of years ago. He spoke about a test by which we can prove the authenticity of the claims of a worldview. There are questions that need to be answered. They're questions of origin, meaning, morality, and purpose. Origin, meaning, morality, and purpose. When answered, these must empirically, which is through verifiable observation, and logically correspond in a coherent way. He went on to say that the Christian faith is the only one that can tie all of these questions together to give a complete and sensible answer. For anyone that doesn't agree with that, I realize it is a bold statement, but bear with me because today we're exploring a certain aspect that sets Christianity apart in one of the most unique and incredible ways. God Almighty reaches down to mankind and gives the most priceless and perfect gift of all. His son Jesus the gap between us and the great I am is bridged no other religion or worldview can claim this we have been given the gift of salvation freely not being able to earn it or work for it I challenge you to find that anywhere else this claim alone has seen millions of lives changed radically for good as a church. I encourage us to display our change. And to those outside of the church, don't dismiss it. God has placed in each one of us a homing beacon pointing us towards him and his son. Let's read through together. So if you've got your Bibles, please open to Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. What I will do is repeat each of these scriptures as we proceed through so it becomes a little bit easier to follow. It should help just in case anyone doesn't have a Bible with them. Let's start with verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Throughout the beginning of Hebrews, as you may notice, there is a common theme that includes a lot about angels. The author uses this to declare the superiority of Jesus over everything by his superiority over the angels as we will see later in this passage. Since this letter was addressed to Hebrew people, we would find that angels were popular in Jewish mythology at the time because they held a particular importance in Old Testament throughout key stages. They were associated with the giving of the law in early Judaism which Stephen refers to in Acts 7.53 Which says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The major prophet Daniel receives answers to prayer through angels in Daniel 10. It is therefore possible that the Jewish readers may have thought of Jesus as an angel. Like Michael or Gabriel. Because angels were considered to be greatly important to the Jews. The author knew this. And therefore, he began by showing them that Jesus is someone of infinitely more greatness than an angel. He is the Son of God. This creates a separation between them and Jesus. And when he talks about this in the subjection of the world to come, we'll see later in this chapter why he makes this comment, but it ties Jesus to humanity, therefore ruling him out as being angelic. Go on down to verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Verses 6 to 8 are a reference to Psalm 8 verses 4 to 6. And when it says, what is man? The Hebrew word for man used in the psalm means weak, miserable and mortal man. Man in his fallen state obnoxious to grief sorrow anxiety pain trouble and death what is he to the increasingly vast universe or as David put it in in verse 3 of the psalm when I look at the, the heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place this psalm really is a celebration of the immeasurable love and kindness of God to mankind David poses this question well, though. Why does God consider us? It goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. When I first began to study this, I think probably because I didn't have the depth that I did later on, it seemed like it was only talking about mankind. But when I looked more and more closely, comparing various translations and going back to the original Greek, I saw that it is actually a messianic prophecy about Jesus by David in fact there are two facets here and they refer both to jesus and mankind but without becoming too confusing i'm not going to delve too closely into that we will see this link in verse 9 and this is where an astute reader would see another connection to verse 5 which ties this subjection reference together let me share some thoughts i had when i was exploring this topic God did not create mankind because he needed us, but rather because he wanted us. The scriptures proclaim the absolute glory of God and his perfect love. We exist to see and display the beauty, worth and greatness of God in every sphere of our lives. No one has contributed to God anything that he did not originally create. And so from a certain angle, when I, when I looked at everything in the light of the majesty of God, we pale into insignificance. I often remember the scripture from Psalms 103, verses 15 to 16, which says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. Really puts into perspective how minor we are in the grand scheme of things. And yet, it says that we are only a little lower than the angels, and that we have been given dominion over all the earth and the animal world, and that our full destiny has not even come into being yet. And this is a reference to where it says that not everything is under our subjection at this time. God cares for us, and because He does, we do matter. Each and every person. All of this is to say that when God sent himself as Jesus the man, it was the greatest act of humility in human history. God had to debase himself in order to become a redeemer. That's love, ladies and gentlemen. Off the charts, love. Mm -hmm. Verse 9 embodies this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is given splendour and authority over all things, because as the scriptures say, he had this humiliation in suffering death. He was the personification of the grace of God. Let's look more closely at the author's use of the words taste death for everyone, because I think there are a couple of links here that are quite important to dive into. When the scriptures say that Jesus tasted death, this is a clear indication of both his humanity and deity. He experienced the bitterness of of death just as men do, but did not stay that way. In the same breath, the statement for everyone needs to be understood and how it must be used in in conjunction with other scriptures like the famous John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Likewise, Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9 to 10, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Later in Hebrews, the author will also talk about the rest of God, which is a reference to heaven, and how those that believe in him will enter in, and those who don't believe will not. Jesus has made payment for the sins that we all have a part in. However, it is only by putting your belief and love in him and your confession of the necessity for his sacrifice that you become born again. Which is to say that you experience that spiritual renewal. This is what the repentant attitude looks like. The reason I pause on this topic for a moment is that we must understand that the gift of Jesus' salvation is one that each person must choose and receive for themselves. A free gift, yes, but one that must be accepted by the recipient. Verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Considering the Hebrews who this letter is directed toward, when we look at this scripture, you can imagine how it might have been a bit difficult for them to grasp. They had all expected the promised Messiah to sweep through and free them from their subjection to the Roman Empire and lead them into a type of victory, one that they could understand. The way in which they had been raised and the power of God sorry and the teaching they had received from a young age would have been about the might and the power of God seen at work in their history throughout the, the history of the Israelite nation. The Greek translation in this in this particular scripture for founder that we can see here may also be captain or author, which simply shows that Jesus is the centerpiece of our salvation. So for the author to say that Jesus was made perfect through suffering might not have made sense to them. Why would the Son of God need to be made perfect? The scripture is not saying that Jesus need to be perfected in the sense that we imagine, as though he had some fault in him or some kind of sin. And death and suffering were the only way for this to be made right. It means that his work or mission was completed and brought into consummation and fullness through his death and resurrection. So, this is what it means when it says he had to be made perfect through his suffering. They didn't seem to yet recognize the importance of Jesus' death and the role that it would play in bringing many sons to glory. When Jesus died, the great curtain in the temple of Jerusalem was torn from top to bottom. A supernatural phenomenon. The curtain symbolized the barrier between men and God. The Holy of Holies was the inner part of the temple. And this is where that curtain would create the uh, the separation between the outers and the inners. That separating veil was torn in two from top to bottom and therefore removed and the glory of God now resides in his people. In fact, we are now the temples of the Lord. We see this in several places in scripture, such as 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, which says, For we are the temple of the living God. Jesus had to sanctify us through his sacrifice because otherwise we would never have been called worthy to be called temples of the Lord. The temple before the new covenant was a majestic and also deeply holy place. The only time a person could enter in was once a year and there had to be a high priest. Before they entered on the day of atonement, which was that single day of the year, they had to wash, put on special clothing, bring burning incense to let the smoke cover their eyes from a direct view of the Lord, and bring sacrificial blood with them to make atonement for sins. And yet, we have this access, never seen before. No longer do we have to approach through rituals and animal sacrifice, which could never make us right or perfect. As it says in verses 11 and 12, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. God the Father is our source. And we have been brought into fellowship with him through Jesus. Despite our wicked proclivities, God does not despise mankind. For us to be called brothers and sisters or brethren of the Lord is the highest honor. The Hebrews would have understood this. They were very proud of their heritage as the chosen people of God. But it is doubtful that they would ever have gone so far as to say that they were the actual family of the Lord. Just in case this wasn't something they wouldn't be able to grasp or receive the author follows up in verses 12 with his quotation from Psalms 22, verse 22. This is another messianic prophecy that he now reveals has been fulfilled through Jesus. It is a full quotation of the scripture, which scholars believe was an attempt to jog their memories of this particular verse, but it fully applies in this instance. Jesus did speak about his father when he was a man. He did praise him when he was in the presence of the disciples, who had become his church later on, as seen in the reference to congregation. All of this evidence would have weighed heavily in their minds, because they were Hebrews, and because placed directly in front of them, there was little they could do to refute it. Verse 13 also contains messianic prophecies. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The first is not as easy to isolate, and could be from several different places, as the words are the same in most of the passages, but 2 Samuel 22:3 and Isaiah 12:2 are the most likely. The second is certainly from Isaiah 8 verse 18. The necessity of Jesus putting his trust in God is further proof of his humanity and therefore his brotherhood with us. An interesting thing to note here is that when Jesus had been crucified and was hanging on that cross, the chief priests, scribes and elders taunted him saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him for he said, I am the son of God. Little did they know of the purpose of the death he was dying and that Jesus never stopped trusting his father for a moment, even when faced with such torture. For the sake of avoiding unnecessary confusion, I'm not going to delve into the second part of that verse because of how it relates to Isaiah and prophecy. The gist of it is that it indicates the relationship between Christ and his redeemed children. The next part is highlighted in my Bible quite brightly, and for good reason, because it outlines one of mankind's greatest fears and shows us the solution. Verse 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. A key note is delivered. Jesus was to redeem humanity, but to do that, he had to don flesh and blood. Let's pause and consider this. Despite how many times we may have heard it, it is astounding that the God we worship, limitless and all-powerful, would still become as we are. It's important to consider the majesty of God but even more than that is his desire for a relationship with each person individually one to one as a perfect father, brother and mentor. Jesus becoming a man is about that closeness and this scripture is an embodiment of that truth. When we look at what Romans 6.23 says for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord until we receive Jesus and his gift the stark truth applies to our lives the evidence is all around us you just have to watch the news mankind's self-absorbed attitude and pride where death in a literal and metaphorical way follows closely behind what a fascinating truth though Jesus through his death Has destroyed Satan who had the power of death I love the words of a song by an artist called Marcus Gray speaking about what God accomplished through Jesus it goes like this but at the same time I see Satan's plot to destroy and I know I ain't the only one for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and Satan tried to knock him to But when they knocked the nails in his hands, Colossians 2 and 15. And yet, I still see a common theme that's plaguing adults and it's plaguing the teens. When Jesus died, he did more than just give us some help. So help me understand why we're still living for self. We live for our families, for our money and cause. We live for our happiness, for our pleasure is Lord. But ain't we seen yet that that just doesn't work? Living for self can only lead to dozens of hurts. What power does the devil still have? The scriptures say in John 8:44 that he is the father of lies. And when he lies, he is speaking out of his own character. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very real foe who contends with us, but he is defeated. Jesus has taken that last bit of power that he had over us. I encourage each and every person to consider this. We give far too much credit to Satan and far too little to God. I once heard someone speak about this topic and how the majority of believers have more faith in the fact that Satan will be there to cause them problems in their lives than they do that God will be there to deliver them. That is absolutely not true. The word tells us that God will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13 verse 5. How do we drown out these lies of the devil then? We are taught in Romans 12 verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Also. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We can only accomplish this by getting well acquainted with the Word of God. When we learn what God says about us and drown out the rest of the lies, we take the final weapon that Satan holds over us, away. I'd encourage us all here, let's consider what we have going into our minds, what we watch, what we hear. The less time we spend filling our minds with worthless entertainment, which it is, if you really think about it, the less opportunity we give for the devil to inject his lies in there. Every person fears death, in a sense, because it is the unknown. That is why the scriptures say that we were once subject to a lifelong slavery. It refers to that fearful state of mind. As a believer, however, we have a hope and a promise that death is only the beginning of a future in fellowship with God. Eternity in the presence of the source of goodness and joy. Give this careful consideration this morning. Where do you find yourself? For those of us who do believe in the resurrection power of Jesus, let's be reminded of his work. For those who don't believe, but may have this nagging doubt about what comes next, I've been talking about Jesus and his purpose for humanity. Don't hesitate to ask the questions that may be weighing on your heart. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What a beautiful scripture. Jesus offers this gift to us all. It isn't exclusive or dependent on our merit. Verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, that reference to angels and the author pointing toward Christ being made of flesh and blood. Some translations say, more clearly in my opinion, That Jesus did not take on the nature of angels. He took on himself the seed of Abraham, humanity. Verse 17 then reveals more reasons why. He was made like us in every respect. Able to suffer temptation, sorrow, pain and death. So that he could become our high priest before God. As we touched on earlier... The high priest was a representative of men to God. And therefore, without being totally like us, Jesus could not be a true high priest for us. The order of the original Greek places emphasis on the words compassionate or merciful. That is certainly a pervading tone throughout this chapter. It is this compassion then that makes Jesus our faithful high priest. His faithfulness is a result of his compassion toward us. Our original Hebrew audience would have understood this more fully because the author is engaging with that familiar way of thinking. Since the ordinance of a high priest was originally instituted by God, recognizing the gravity of having one who can make reconciliation for the sins of all people, not just for a select group, should change our whole perspective. I would imagine that it certainly would have for these people. They were used to this tradition. They were used to being God's chosen people. Now they are told that the Son of God himself has become their high priest. There is no one more fitting, more qualified or more capable of such a role. The final verse. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word tempted may seem like it only applies to temptation, being the desire to do something unwise. But the original Greek word gives a more rounded definition. Put to the proof. Try the nature or character of. Hebrews 4 verse 15, which we will touch on later in this series. It explains this so perfectly. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The Hebrew church was used to a holy God who defined perfection. The old law was very strict, and we know the reason is that God wanted mankind to realize that we can never meet His standard and that we needed Him to make provision for us. To be told that they had a divine high priest who had been tempted as we all are would have given them that relatability. The essence of what God desires with each and every one of us is relationship. For us to love Him and want that communion. As I conclude, I want to point out some of the more important areas from this passage in summary for us to meditate on this week. Jesus has taken on this body of flesh that you and I have. Because of that, we call him brother. Jesus has tasted death. Because of that, we are sanctified. And the power that the devil had over us, namely death, has been destroyed. Jesus has become our merciful and faithful high priest, interceding for us as he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He was tempted as we are, in every way, and so can help us when we are tempted. We don't yet see the finished work of Jesus. This world has not yet come into that final subjection to him. What we can see is Jesus in one another, Jesus in his church. Let me close with a prayer. Father God, thank you for your son. We are blessed to have a great intercessor on our behalf. I thank you that we have authority over the devil through Jesus, that his power has been taken away from him totally. The scriptures say, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Each one of us will go away from here more aware of this Lord and put it into practice. I thank you for placing our church in this community and that we will continue to grow and see more blessing in our town and the surrounding areas as a result of your work. We take this opportunity, Father, to lift your name up high. Amen.